0: Georges Collinet here with another Afropop close-up. Our story today is about Somali poetry. In case you don't know, Somalia is famous as a land of poets. But what happens to that poetry when Somalis are forced to flee their homeland and settle here in the US? Can it live on in their new homes? Reporter Ian Koss brings us a story of two young women going
1: to great lengths to keep a family tradition alive. At the heart of this story are seven lines of poetry. They're written by a young woman named Amal Hussein.
2: It's just, I woke up one day, (laughs) and I was like, I'm definitely writing a Somali poem today. And one day turned into a week, a week turned into a month, a month turned into months, and yeah, that's what happened.
1: But to tell the story of those seven lines, we also need to meet Amal's friend. Her name is Hamdi Mohammed.
0: We met um, when we both went to Islamic school, so our sixth grade, right? We knew each other before then. I've seen you around, but I never spoke oh, to you yeah, before that's Okay. Because she actually doesn't know this, but she has a very mean face, so I never <laughs> spoke to her. But when we went to Islamic school, I kind of had to talk to her because we were the only two Somali people there. I never knew I had a mean face.
1: I would not say Amal's face is mean either. It's long, her features are sharp, but rarely serious. Sometimes her ears poke out from behind her headscarf, and when she laughs, she holds up a slender hand to cover her mouth.
2: I'm not stuck up, right? (laughs)
1: No. Humdi is quieter. Her face is round, made rounder by the headscarf wrapped tightly under her chin and the thick-framed glasses that she's always pushing back up her nose.
0: I think it was more of an awkward face, like, hey, I don't know what to do. (laughs)
1: But however different their faces, Hamdi and Amal have a lot in common.
0: 23 years old now. I'm 23 years old.
1: Both were born in Kenya, where their parents had fled as refugees during the Somali Civil War. Both moved to Boston when they were just a few years old. And both have exactly one memory of the place they left behind.
0: There was a window, so all I remember is playing in the tall grass. So that's all I remember.
1: Of course, both women are poets. I'm a poet.
0: And I'm also a poet.
1: And equally important for this story, both their grandmothers are poets. In the Somali tradition, their poetry goes by many names. Amal and Humdi use the general term gabe.
2: I first got interested in when I seen the video
0: of my grandma doing it, like the Somali Gabe.
3: It's
0: like a circle, and there's a lady who's reciting the poetry, and then there's women dancing in the middle of it. So I was just like, oh my God, what is this? It brings you in. Like,
2: I remember I didn't even understand some of the words, but just the flow, the rhythm, the drums, the beat, everything, like you're literally inside. Think of it like you're there, but like your mind, your soul is not there though. So that's when I was just like, oh my goodness, maybe one day.
1: But there's a difference here in their stories. Hamdi grew up with her grandmother in the house, whispering poems into her ears, performing at family gatherings. Amal has only heard her grandmother's poems on videos, like this one we just heard taped at a wedding 7,000 miles away. She hasn't seen her grandmother for 20 years.
2: She lived through when Somalia was really beautiful and peaceful, and then she lived through the Civil War, and when we left, she didn't want to come. She was always like, this is my sand. This is where I feel like is home.
1: How long would you talk on the phone?
2: Hours. <laughs> It was ours And like right now we have WhatsApp Back then we had like the, the cards So we'd go to the corner store And we like put $20 on a card or something We'll dial it and we'll call her she would tell me stories on how she learned the Gabay. I believe she said when she was four years old, her mother used to do Gabay. So she would tell me how like, her mother would go into a room, sometimes even a funeral, and they would say, hey, can you read us a poem? She would tell me how... The very first place she performed was, like, it was Somali Independence Day, and the principal of the school asked her, hey, can you read us a poem? And she went up there, she was kind of scared at first, but after that, just the feeling of everyone cheering and everyone rooting for her, she just, that always she always held on to that as well, and she realized the big difference that she can make.
1: The way Amal talks about her grandmother... It's like she's there, or here, I suppose, here in the U.S., in Boston, even here in the room. She'll say things like,
2: You know how everyone has their grandmother like in the house? And it's like, I've had that feeling through the phone, which is pretty amazing. Every time I went and I spoke to her, she'd always tell me things that I need to hear rather than things that I want to hear. So she was always like my backbone in a way.
1: Amal grew up hearing poetry in the house, But she never dared write her own until she met Hamdi.
2: That's Hamdi. (laughs) It's Hamdi's the writer.
1: The Islamic middle school they went to was in Mansfield, way out in the suburbs south of Boston.
2: Every morning we used to go to South Station and we used to take the commuter rail. I guess
0: like destiny was forced like it was just forced like we just had to get to know each other since I was super quiet most of our communal rides in the beginning well, I didn't know her that well I'd just be reading a book by myself or something like that oh, I would be writing and she was just writing writing and obviously I like, had go and bother her and see like what she was writing and like she was like okay now your turn you have to write a poem and I did kind of force her to write it too because she was also forcing me to do things out of my comfort zone <laughs> So after a while we
2: just got into this habit where whenever we're on the train we're writing poetry.
0: Sometimes all I can afford is time. Penniless, yeah, I'm timeless. So we would uh, like come up with a different topic and then we would just write like silently and then I'll give her the paper and she'll finish
2: it or I'll finish it at the end. But that cycle can keep going on and on and on. Just like Gabe, in a way. The land of unbroken horizons. The land of golden camels and slanted
0: trees. The land of red dust and memories. The land of unzi and spices. The land of halwa and shah. Then you the hear the, the, like, train stop, and you're like, oh, okay. And then you get up, and then you go back to the real world, so.
1: As young girls, Hamdi and Amal always wrote their poems in English. Which makes sense, because that was the language they learned to read and write in school.
2: Actually, my first word wasn't Somali. It was hoya, and that means mom. However, speaking, it would be English, definitely.
1: Amal's family would toggle back and forth, her mom speaking Somali, children responding in English. She and her siblings understood the language just fine, but actually making her own phrases was a lot harder and potentially embarrassing.
2: My aunt, she came into my house and she was looking for my mom. She's like, "Where's your mom?" Like she said it in Somali. She was like, "Hoya Alla," and rather than saying "Hoya majaktem," which means like "my mom isn't here," I said something along the lines like "Hoya matalo," meaning an item is like not here. You know when "Hoya" is a person. I don't know how to explain it to you, but it's totally ridiculous. And I remember that she was looking at me like, "What?" <laughs> so it was pretty embarrassing.
1: This language gap in the family was something else that the two girls shared. And it's something they shared with a lot of the other Somali kids they grew up with.
3: Right, the first thing is that the Somali community, when they arrive here in the United States, Somalis arrive here in different ages. The elders, the middle age, the young children. The children usually, you know, learn the language quickly. The elders, you know, it takes them time. So right away, within a few years, there is a language barrier, not between the society and Somali elders, but the Somali elders and their own children. My name is Yusuf Abdullah, and and I am the Imam of Boston Islamic Center.
1: Amal and Hamdi grew up coming to the Boston Islamic Center for Friday prayers or to break their fast during Ramadan. It's the only Somali-owned and operated mosque in the state, and it's modest. No arching dome, no minaret. The building used to be a car repair shop. In his 10 years as Imam, Yusuf has noticed that the language gap between children, parents, and grandparents is part of a much deeper divide, really a cultural divide. Somalis are a nation of poets and poetry the
3: prophets and the idioms, it's rich in that term. I mean, where I grew up, when everybody comes home from herding, you know, animals or cows or goats,
1: that's when our parents used to share those things with us. As we speak, Yusuf's young son is running in wide circles around the carpeted hall of the mosque. After trying to shush him a few times, Yusuf hands over his phone so his son can watch YouTube videos. Turning back to the stories and poems that he grew up on, Yusuf says simply, they don't make sense to kids growing up here. It relates to camel, herding, goat, you know, the shepherd, the rivers,
3: things that make sense in there, but not here. See the rain? It was basically something to celebrate. Here we stay inside. When it rains, even we keep the kids inside. But there, it is, you know, everybody goes outside, especially kids, and we play outside with the rain. Everything, everything is different when you come to the United States. So, of course, you can tell stories, it's not enough. They don't understand. And going back is not easy. So, the point is since there is a great difference between the two environments, the children in here are Americans. And it is actually a far story for them to be related to Somalia.
1: The bitter truth of his words was borne out in the weather. It rained as I left the mosque, like it had rained for days and days over a wet Boston spring. At the same moment, parts of Somalia had passed two years without seeing rain.
0: How much is water worth? How much would you pay for wet dirt? Oil rainbows on sidewalks? The sound of rain on your rooftop? How much is life worth? Can you gather your lifeblood in your hands? Watch as the heartbeats devolve, deteriorate into dust. How much water will be brushed away? Like it ain't the fabric of our bodies. Like it ain't the fuel of ourselves. Like water ain't worth a damn thing anymore. I pray for months of monsoons, for a hailstorm of water droplets, soaking into the earth, soaking onto their faces. May God grace us with rain.
1: Do your parents ever make fun of you if you, you know, complain about the heat or something?
0: They make fun of me every time I complain. They're like, you can't withstand anything. They say that's because you're American. You can't, you know. You complain it's too hot, too cold, you're tired. My mom's like, I wasn't tired until I was 30. How are you tired, you know? But yeah.
1: Once again, this is Hamdi Mohammed.
0: She would say, why do Americans hate the rain? Like, it's such a blessing, you know? Because our country doesn't get that much rainfall each year. So the rainy season is almost like a celebration, really, whenever it happens.
1: Hamdi and her grandmother used to walk together like this in the city. They'd start in South Boston and go for miles along quiet streets lined with triple decker apartments sometimes all the way down to the waterfront her grandmother would tell stories about nomadic life about following the rain the grass and animals
0: she would teach us about like the aqal like the temporary housing like you'd have to build it you know from like hides and stuff and like whenever you're moving like as a nomad like you're always on the go so you put the aqal materials on top of the camel and you'd take it with you to the next spot
3: Hamdi's grandmother
1: left Boston almost 10 years ago to go back home. She's living in Kenya now, where it's safer. That's where she feels she belongs, just like Amal's grandmother. And that feeling of belonging elsewhere, it seems to trickle down through the family, a little more diluted with each generation.
0: So they would always you know, tell me, they'll point out things like, oh, you know, we have a similar tree like this in Somalia, or, oh, they would tell me about, like, the different plants and stuff like that, different fruits. So they like talking about back home. Anything that has to do with back home, they like talking about it.
1: Are your parents the same? Do they talk about back home a lot? Of
0: course, that's home to them.
2: So it's always, like, a repetitive story, of course.
1: Do you ever get tired of it?
2: Never, ever. I always, like the more I hear about it, the more I just want to go back. It's like a place where everyone is just like you. Same language, same religion. Like nothing, no one's foreign. We're not foreign. So it's like, it's home. So I just want to experience that one day too.
1: During this conversation, we've been walking to a mall's house. It's just outside Dudley Square in the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston. And she's quick to add that this is home, too. Just a different kind of home. No camels, no grandparents, but lots of memories.
0: The girls who play basketball here, do you remember? On the court and off the court, you make friends, yeah. (laughs) On the court, you make enemies. (laughs) But off the court, you're all friends again, so. Me, personally, I wasn't good at basketball. She was better than I was. So I would just pass the ball to her.
2: (laughs) And then the mosque would be right down there. We'd go down there and pray after, and then come right back up to play some more.
1: Everywhere we go in the neighborhood, there are stories like this, and personal connections. We meet a cousin who Amal had lost touch with, a shopkeeper who was on the phone with Humdi's mother, Strangers would recognize them just by the family resemblance.
2: So I can see the face of her mom
3: through her, that's why. Yeah, and both of
1: them. Watching them in these interactions, it seems like Hamdi and Amal shift effortlessly between Somali and English. All right. All right. So nice to, you. You. nice to meet you. But then when I ask them about it, turns out they're both feeling kind of anxious every time they have to speak Somali. You have to remember, there's always that danger of referring to a person as an object.
0: My mom, before I go inside any search, she said, don't embarrass me, okay? So that's why I keep it to a minimum when I'm speaking Somali.
2: We'd always hear the same remarks. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's always like, you should know your language.
0: Yes. (laughs) So I'll give you a little mini lecture after, you know, you mess up. They're like, ah, you need to learn Somali, okay?
1: So then when you go to write in Somali, do you feel a lot of pressure then to... (laughs) to try and get it right?
2: Definitely. I would never want to offend anyone when it comes to the language because initially that's what Gabe is all about, the understanding of each other through our own language.
1: Three years ago, Amal decided to take on that pressure, not just for herself, but for her grandmother, the woman she only knew through videos and phone calls.
2: So... I got off the phone with my grandma, and I'll, and right away I'm like, okay, I'm gonna write a Somali poem.
1: The poem is only seven lines, but that is more of a challenge than you might think.
2: You know how there's like regular English, and then there's like poetic English, like William Shakespeare. It's like that.
1: Ngabe is not just free-form poetry. It's more like a sonnet, if we're talking Shakespeare where all the words have to fit in the right timing.
2: So whenever I write, I always have this rhythm. And it's the rhythm my my grandma always used when she was reading her poetry.
1: Then you need rhymes and alliteration.
2: Like it took me forever to even write the first line. (laughs) Actually the second line, the first line was fast. The second line, now I'm trying to find something that rhymes with the last word of the first line. So that took forever because my Somali vocabulary isn't
1: that big and the meaning can't be too obvious you have to tuck it into metaphors and proverbs references to landscapes that Amal could just barely recall
2: so I went to my mom I went to my uncles I went to my cousins I went to everyone I could possibly go to just so they can tell me hey like maybe this is wrong maybe maybe go look at that or hey this is totally wrong fix that bring that here and things like that and I remember calling my grandma and like she would listen to it It's a warning. Like, I'm talking to all the Somali people that flee away from Somalia in a way. We were exiled from our own country. And then the little kids that were used to the sand, we took that away from them. We came to a place where they make it seem so easy. It's the golden pot at the end of the rainbow. So in a way, it's like we left our own country, we were exiled, and we looked for a place that is non-existent. Well, at first she didn't talk. She was just really silent. She started crying, and then she was like, you're definitely my granddaughter. (laughs) Like, we have that connection, that good connection. Like you, you took after me when it came to Gabe and I want you to hold on to it, and I want you to continue, and I don't want anyone to ever tell you that you can't do it.
1: When was that conversation?
2: That was, I believe, like three years ago. So it was like a year before she passed away. We all knew she was sick, so we like I made sure I spoke to her often and. Because my Somali name is Mumtaz, so I should always say, Oh, Mumtaz, the poet, you know? Khurahay, which means, like, Mumtaz, like, you know, the most beautiful and things like that. That was, like, one of my last memories with her. October 27. That was the date my grandma died. I was also born on October 27. So the relationship of my grandma and I made a full circle in the end. 10-27, bittersweet remedy of a life full of death, or shall I say strength? The day alone says it all. October 27, to and from heaven. Souls cry in tears of pieces, nothing wholesome about something to be forgotten. Birth pure, stained rotten. I wish I knew, perhaps I would have kicked softer. A few more hours, the 28th seems brighter. How a day of joy for my mother can be a day of pain for another. Or perhaps the same day, different year, rolling down her heart is a tear. Yet yeah, I'm supposed to celebrate, hoorah, it's my day. So let me swallow the pain and hate, everyone together. Prayers five times for the gone, six times for whoever's next, and every single time for my grandma.
1: 10.27. How do you know when a poem is finished?
2: Honestly, I feel like my poems are never finished. And I think that's something I get from Gabe as well, because even when I'm done, I feel like I'm not.
1: Both Amal and Hamdi hope to travel to Somalia in the next year to meet the family they'd never met, to see the landscapes they can just barely recall, and in a way, to imagine the people they might have been if history hadn't pulled their lives from the sandy soil where they were born. For Hamdi, at least, her grandmother is still there, living in Kenya at the moment, and waiting to see her granddaughter again after many years apart. Hamdi is working on a translation of her poem, For My Ayeo." You heard the first few lines at the beginning. We'll hear the last few lines now. Hamdi hopes to speak them to her grandmother in person and in Somali.
0: I feel heavy, Ayayo, when we speak on the telephone. My memory of your hands are fading. Henna we used to wear black and red, now gone. Make a prayer, Ayayo, with your long black prayer beads. God is closer to you than I. I am coming soon, Ayayo. Listen for my skin and bones. They always know where they came from.
1: This Afropop close-up was produced in collaboration with the Ground Truth Project at WGBH as part of their series, The New American Songbook. It was edited by Rachel Rohr, Heidi Shin, and Charles Sennett, with additional help from k khan and Marilyn Halter. Music for this episode was performed by Awil Ahmed. Special thanks to Issa D. Kamil, Lidwin Captains, Idris Ali, and Abdirahman Yusuf funding for this episode came from Mass Humanities and from the National Endowment for the Humanities. But to keep the close-up series going, we'll need your support. Visit afropop.org and make a donation. For Afropop Worldwide, I'm Ian Koss.